Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. A peaceful transfer of power to a new U.S. presidency is secured with 25,000 National Guard troops. This is America's day. This is democracy's day. A day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. And facing public health, economic, and political crises, Experts say that the new Biden administration needs to act quickly and boldly at home and respect international law abroad. Well, a fundamental question is why is the Secretary of State designate Mr. Blinken agreeing with the neoconservative Senator Marco Rubio of Florida? Uh, that does not bode well for the future. There is no morality that I know of, no ethics I can think of that justify the poverty at one end of our society together with grotesque, unconsumable wealth at the other. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for January 22, 2021. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, within hours of taking the oath of office at a militarily fortified U.S. Capitol, President Joe Biden arrived at the White House on January 20th and signed 17 executive orders, some of which will, for the first time, create a nationally directed strategy to tackle the coronavirus pandemic which has already killed more than 410,000 Americans. With tens of millions out of work, executive actions also extend the federal ban on evictions through March and pause student loan payments until September. At the same time, activists for climate and environmental justice are celebrating Biden rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, revoking the permit to build the Keystone XL pipeline, reversing Trump's plans to allow offshore drilling or mining at national heritage sites, and killing funding for Trump's boondoggle border wall, some of which was so shoddily engineered that experts said it could eventually fall into the Rio Grande River. On the immigration front, the so-called Muslim ban has been eliminated, and the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program has been strengthened to provide a path for citizenship for immigrants brought to the United States as children. Biden spoke to reporters as he signed the orders. I'm going to start by keeping the promises I made to the American people. Long way to go. These are just executive actions. Uh, they are important, but we're going to need legislation for a lot of the things we're going to do. Now, while many of these January 20th actions indicate a positive direction, the January 19th Senate confirmation hearing for Antony Blinken to be Biden's new Secretary of State put a definite damper on any celebration, as Blinken declared his support for continued illegal sanctions war against Venezuela and U.S. recognition of a never-elected man named Juan Guaido as Venezuela's president. More on Biden's foreign policy later in the show. There were more than 1.3 million new claims for all types of unemployment benefits for the week ending January 16th. 
These figures were announced on Thursday, one day after the inauguration of Biden, who sounded large themes of national unity, empathy, and civility in his speech, but did not address equally the nation's economic crisis. That crisis includes essential workers who are fighting back against unsafe work conditions and poor pay. On Wednesday, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez skipped evening inaugural activities to stand on the picket line in the Bronx with Hunts Point Market produce distribution workers who are striking for $1 more an hour and better health benefits in the middle of the pandemic. The folks who are delivering our food and loading our trucks, they're asking for a dollar. And I think the least we can do after a year of a global pandemic where these folks have been working so hard in a time of record profits, by the way, for them to share in the prosperity that they are creating and and in keeping us safe. Here in D.C., sanitation workers told WPFW Pacifica Radio on Martin Luther King's birthday that they need to be treated as essential workers and given the type of pay, hazard pay, protections, and vaccine priority as other essential workers are given. Also, teachers in D.C. say that they can begin teaching in person only when it's safe. Thomas O'Rourke has that story. More than 600 people attended a virtual town hall on Thursday, January 21st to hear representatives from the American Federation of Teachers and Washington Teachers Union President Elizabeth Davis discuss the union's options concerning pressure from D.C. public schools for teachers to return to in-person learning by February 1st. Also on Thursday, the union filed a detailed complaint to the Public Employee Relations Board outlining some 17 points of non-compliance on the part of DCPS to a previously negotiated and signed memo of agreement between the school district and teachers. Davis said that Schools Chancellor Louis Farabee and Mayor Muriel Bowser must comply with the agreement to assure the school buildings are safe for staff and students during the COVID-19 pandemic. Davis also told members that their reports of safety violations of actions by individual principals and other evidence from schools and community help the union prove noncompliance with the agreement. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. The up to 26,000 National Guard troops initially brought to Washington, D.C. in advance of the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris had begun the drawdown, though up to 7,000 will remain active on federal property and on the streets of D.C. until at least the end of the month. As of Thursday, four stations for the metro, our subway system, remained closed, and this week there were more arrests of those who attacked the Capitol on January 6th. Prosecutors on Tuesday said three people affiliated with the far-right militia group, the Oath Keepers, conspired to breach the U.S. Capitol in the violent rioting that left five people dead. There is also other fallout from the January 6th insurrection. 135 rights groups on Thursday wrote a letter to Congress voicing their opposition to new so-called domestic terrorism laws to prosecute the marauders. The letter, spearheaded by the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, said that existing laws on the books can be used to prosecute the rioters and that any new laws or strengthening of the police state will 
only be used instead against peaceful protesters for human and civil rights in the future. And finally, as I mentioned, this week started with a celebration of the birthday of the human rights leader, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Chantal James learned more about a program here in the DMV serving homeless youth. With the highest homeless population per capita in the nation here in D.C., the plight of the unhoused is of ongoing concern during the COVID-19 pandemic. Over 3,000 youth experience homelessness in Washington, D.C. and Prince George's County, Maryland. And to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr. Day with service, Sasha Bruce Youth Work highlighted its outreach and support efforts to serve homeless youth in the area with an online event as well as being introduced to the many available opportunities to support the organization, participants also had the chance to hear from the youth it serves. Elle and others of the youth who have been supported by Sasha Bruce Youth Work spoke, along with program manager Pam Lieber. I was uh, born in a jail um, while my parents were incarcerated in Danbury, Connecticut. I stopped going to school because they was like making fun of me and I felt like unsafe there. My mom, she was unstable mentally because of the environment and she couldn't really provide for us that much. I was worried about getting kicked out of my parents' house and having nowhere to go. I was homeless for a couple of years. I don't remember the number. You guys to where my tent was at. Elle was brought to us by our outreach team. Our outreach team goes out each night, um, and they found Elle and a friend um, who were sleeping in a tent in Georgetown. I like I was worried about my safety. Um, how was I going to eat or get clothes, change my clothes? Sometimes I was sleeping in parking garages. Um, I would be on the bus riding back and forth to like three in the morning sometimes. She and a friend who shared the tent were sort of settling down for the night to kind of try to get some sleep um, while they were out under the bridge. The workshop was a partnership with the presidential inaugural committee. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And finally, finally, this week, approaching the end of the first month of 2021, also encapsulates the hopes, fears, possibilities, failures, and dangers for the United States. Perhaps the Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, said it best on Wednesday on Pacifica Radio's national inauguration broadcast, summarizing the needs of the country and for the moment. We cannot go back to normalcy. Last thing. We cannot go back to a minimum wage of seven terms. We got to get to fifteen in the union. That's what Dr. King then proposed at the March in Washington. Two dollars an hour minimum wage would translate to fifteen today. We have to get to universal health care. We have to get to immigration uh, justice. We have to get to uh, Native American justice and taking care of our indigenous brothers and sisters. We have to restore the Voting Rights Act. We have to do police reform. We have to redirect some of our bloated eight hundred billion dollar military budget. That that's more than North Korea, Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China combined. We have to redirect some of that money to deal with infrastructure and health care and wages. We have to put more money in public education. We have to have a just comprehensive COVID response that lifts from the bottom because the majority of the people that are dying and get infected are poor and low wealth people, regardless if they're people of color or even white poor people. We have to 
have an infrastructure plan that builds jobs and money development in poor, low-wealth communities and lifts from the bottom up. We have to let go of austerity. We have to let go of trickle-down economics that only talks about the middle class up, I'm excuse me, the wealthy down, and, and neoliberalism that only talks about the middle class up. We must become statesmen and states, women in this moment, not left, not right, not centrist, not Democrat, not Republican, because we are in pain. Reverend Barbara also delivered the homily at the inaugural prayer service at the Washington National Cathedral on Thursday, January 21st. In his address, he called for a third reconstruction to uplift 140,000 poor and low wealth people in the United States. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averm. Well, there were more than 1.3 million new claims for unemployment benefits for the week ending January 16th. These figures were announced on Thursday, one day after the inauguration of Joe Biden, who sounded large themes of national unity, empathy, and civility in his speech, but did not address equally the nation's economic crisis. With me to discuss how Biden is addressing that crisis so far is the economist, author, and professor Richard Wolf, founder of the organization Democracy at Work and host of the popular show Economic Update. Welcome back to the show, Rick. Thank you, Esther. Glad to be here. Well, I've read lots of praise from all corners for Biden's $1.3 trillion economic stimulus plan announced January 14th. But I've listened to you in various interviews, and I know that you are critical of it. So lay out for us what you think the plan gets and what it misses. Okay. This is a little bit delicate because I am critical. You're quite right. But I want to preface my critical remarks by saying what I hope is clear to everybody, that compared to what Trump did not do, what Biden is going to do is certainly much better. There's no, I'm not quarreling with that. I don't deny that for one minute. It is a low bar that Mr. Trump left us. And so it wouldn't be all that hard to do better than that. But Mr. Biden is doing it and he deserves everybody's appreciation for the fact that he's not another Donald Trump uh, and not even close. So I want to give him that. Here's my criticism. This is the worst economic crash in a century. It has only the Great Depression of the 1930s uh, that is even worse, at least so far, than what we are going through. But here's the second point. We are going through this economic crash at the same time that we are going through the greatest public health disaster also in a century. Back in the 1930s, we didn't have a public health disaster to go with it. So this is unprecedented territory. We are in an unspeakable economic crash. There's no way out of it, and no pretending or denial is going to get us through it. 
that means that you have to do unprecedented things. It can't be that what you do is what the others did, only you do more of it. More of it won't cut it. More of it won't do adequately what the situation needs. So let me be very precise so folks understand what it is that Biden isn't doing that he could and should do. Number one, we currently have roughly, and boy, are these data rough, 21, 22 million Americans collecting unemployment insurance, either from the 50 states, uh, one of the 50 states, or from the federal government, or in some cases, a little from both. All right, these people are not working. They are not producing. They are unhappy because they want a job. They are getting some unemployment, but for most of them, it's not enough to compensate for what they could have gotten if they were working. They don't feel good about themselves. They suffer all kinds of physical and mental problems because they are unemployed. Um, They will lean on their family and friends for help at a time when family and friends are also pinched, etc., etc. The proper response... What we should have gotten is a program of government jobs immediately for all of them. Let me explain. Those 21, 22 million people could be an army to test everyone for this disease, something we have not yet been able to do, even though 10 months have gone by. These people could be building things, could be greening a new deal. They could be helping thousands of elderly people. They could be providing services of all kinds in a safe way, of course, six foot apart with masks and all the rest. That would make them happier. They'd have a job. They'd have an income. They could pay their rent and their mortgage. This is what we should have been doing. By the way, in the Great Depression, we did that. The the Roosevelt administration back in the 1930s, hired 15 million Americans. Then we were a smaller country to do federal jobs. Why in the world are we not doing that now? Why in the world would a president from the same political party, the Democrats, as Roosevelt had been, not say, of course, there's a way to deal with this unprecedented combination of crisis, economic crisis, and public health disaster. For me, to be honest with you, Esther, there's no excuse for this. There is no excuse, not only for not doing it, but there's no conversation. Nancy Pelosi, Mr. Schumer, Mr. Biden, Kamala Harris, they should be talking about it. If they want to debate the pros and cons of it, fine. But what we have here is a kind of agreement not to talk about what should have been on the front burner. And for me, that's very serious. And here's the second one. And I don't mean to to, to monopolize the conversation, but these are crucial issues for folks, you know, to get their hands and their minds around. Everyone who thinks about this and countless polls indicate that Americans suffer from the grotesque inequality in this country. 
The most recent statistics suggest we have at least 30 million people in America who are what we call food insecure. That's a fancy way of saying they go hungry on a regular basis. At the same time, Jeffrey Bezos and people like that sit on personal fortunes of $200 billion. There is no morality that I know of, no ethics I can think of that justify the poverty at one end of our society together with grotesque, unconsumable wealth at the other. That should have been addressed by Mr. Biden in his inauguration message. He should have said what we did again in the 1930s, tax corporations and the rich, tax them heavily so that they contribute the extra they have to solve these current social problems. If we don't do that, if we don't do these kinds of things, the economy is going to deteriorate and we're going to invite another Trump four years from now. I wanted to play a clip of Janet Yellen testifying before the Senate this week in her confirmation hearing to be Treasury Secretary in the Biden administration. Because when I first heard it, I didn't realize that she was basically defending the same package. I thought that maybe she was discussing additional aid, but I just wanted to play this and then get your reaction. Right now, with interest rates at historic lows, the smartest thing we can do is act big. In the long run, I believe the benefits will far outweigh the costs, especially if we care about helping people who've been struggling for a very long time. People worry about a K-shaped recovery, but well before COVID-19 infected a single American, we were living in a K-shaped economy, one where wealth built upon wealth while working families fell farther and farther behind. This is especially true for people of color. So this was Janet Yellen's testimony before the Senate this week. And that was kind of in the context of some senators, um, I think mainly uh, Senator Grassley, already saying that this package is too big, not practical or whatever. And then I also heard Jen Psaki, Biden's new press secretary, feel that very same question from reporters talking about pushback from the Senate on this same package. Then she said, well, what are we going to cut? I mean, the package was created to address all these urgent needs. So if you're talking about cuts, are you going to cut firefighters or teachers? Are you going to cut vaccine distribution? So I'm wondering if you think that there's this pushback because the urgency wasn't really delivered by the politicians, by Biden. Yeah, I think that I don't mean to be mean. But when Mr. Trump was running for office back in 2016, he also talked about helping working families, helping poor. Uh, he was going to be a champion to bring back jobs. Uh, he was going to do something about all these problems. That seems to be a staple of politics in America. When you're running for something or you're giving public statements, you show that you care, that yes, it's terrible, the inequality and the suffering at the one end and the grotesque wealth at the other. But I think most Americans have learned that, that okay, the words are nice, but let's see what is it you're going to do. 
And again, I want to be fair. John, I know Janet Yellen. She and I were classmates at Yale getting our PhDs in economics together. Uh, she and I had the same teachers. She and I went through the same curriculum and got the same degree. Uh, so I know exactly <laughs> where she's coming from, uh, even on a personal level. Uh, she means well. She recognizes these problems. But she is trapped, in my humble opinion, in the same logic that the Democratic Party has been trapped in for quite a while. They worry about deficits because Republicans hassle them about it. And so they pare down what they do and they adjust and they accommodate. And the end result is that they can't do what the situation demands. They're, of course, it's right. Who are you going to cut? But again, they have to worry about people like me, and I am not alone, who are saying the issue is not only don't cut, but that you're falling way short of what this situation demands. But when you push at the end there, as in what you said, I think you hit a very important point, which is where's the pressure coming from? The mass of people who are hungry, the mass of people who are without work, have not been organized and mobilized to make really clear to the whole American people how serious this problem is. I don't see the, the pressure coming, and I don't see it coming from the advisors around Mr. Biden, nor from him. And so, again, my worry is not merely that they're not doing what's adequate. My fear is different. This is a failure being organized, and the punishment for that failure will be the next Trump, who will come riding in over the next four years, attacking the failures of this kind of a program, not by having a better one, but by telling us to go back to the good old MAGA days of the past. It's always a fantasy, but when people are suffering, that fantasy is appealing. I'm rapidly running out of time, but I wanted to at least mention a few articles that I saw. So Bernie Sanders penned an op-ed for The Guardian, and he included in his 100-day agenda to boost the checks to families or individuals to $2,000, the $15 minimum wage, emergency Medicare for all, double community health centers, lower drug prices, don't tax the emergency unemployment benefits that people are receiving, pay family leave, universal child care, rebuild America in terms of, I guess, the Green New Deal and infrastructure. And maybe that includes the jobs that you're talking about, combat climate change and tax the rich. Those were some of the things he talked about. And there have been other 100-day agendas put forward, and we'll just have to see how much, even in this modest package that the Democrats actually fight for, as opposed to, you know, throw overboard in, in some effort to supposedly build bipartisan agreement on the, what is already a modest package. Absolutely. And, you know, again, Bernie's right. But this laundry list of the good things that need to be done, there's no sign that the Biden administration has an appetite to do any of these things. This kind of abstraction is not doing anyone any good and leaves the space for Republicans and conservatives inside the Democratic Party to nibble away at this. And you know, the real agenda there is they don't want these kinds of programs I'm talking about. 
because they don't want to pay higher taxes and they don't want to have to fund paying all those people for a federal jobs program. And I think this is short-sighted on their part, but that's the way they behave. And that is a process in which this system is destroying itself. It doesn't need an outside attack. It is so narrow-mindedly holding on to the privileges of the 1% that they risk, as by the way, people like Warren Buffett keep telling them, they risk killing the goose that lays their golden egg. But you know, when you're on a tear and you don't have mass public opposition, you can do that kind of thing. And I think we're living through it. Yeah, okay. And then I know that in terms of the, the mass, the street mass gatherings that you're talking about, people are even less likely to do that now because of the pandemic. So that kind of complicates the the effort to organize people. But anyway, I'm going to have to leave it there. But we're going to continue our conversations again in the coming months as we watch, but also are active in creating what we need to see in this country and around the world. And and the around the world part is what I'll have to talk to you about another time. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll okay. Thank you. I've been speaking with uh, professor, author, economist Richard Wolf. Thank you for joining me today, Rick. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for the international dimensions of this inaugural week, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. And Gerald, as you might have heard in my headlines, for me, the tone of the week was not set with Wednesday's inauguration speech by Biden. But by the Senate confirmation hearing of Antony Blinken to be Biden's secretary of state and in the hearing, Blinken endorsed continued illegal sanctions against Venezuela and the ridiculous recognition of Juan Guaido as the fake president of Venezuela and also the continued housing of the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, for example. So I really couldn't take very seriously the whole a wringing of hands about the attempt to overturn our election, democratic election in the U.S., while we are continuing to overturn or try to overturn the democratically elected government in a place like Venezuela. Well, there's another aspect to that disturbing hearing as well, which is that uh, Mr. Blinken, presumably the incoming Secretary of State, also suggested continuity with the Trump policy concerning the People's Republic of China. Uh, That was punctuated when a representative of Taiwan, the rebel province off the coast of China that Beijing claims as its own, uh, turned up at the inauguration uh, on Wednesday. 
you might also know that before leaving office, uh, Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Michael Pompeo, left a minefield when he suggested that China was fundamentally executing genocide against the Uyghur minority. That's a very freighted term because what that suggests is that the United States is therefore obligated to intervene. Recall that during the Rwanda crisis of 1994, there was a reluctance on the part of the Clinton team to invoke the term genocide precisely because it would, under international law, have mandated some sort of intervention. And so it seems as if Beijing and Washington are on a collision course, but I would urge the Biden administration to rethink that particular collision course because as of now, they are pursuing a policy that might be called dual containment. That is to say, they plan to ratchet up tensions not only with China, but with Russia. It seems to me that that's a fool's errand. It can only end in tears, and certainly it will harm the basic fundamental fundamental interests of the U.S. people. On the other hand, it will justify an ongoing hike in the Pentagon budget, now over $740 billion, and presumably on the way up when Mr. Biden gets underway. I should also say that part of the problem with this whole foreign policy of the Biden team is that he's relying very heavily, as he did during the primary season, on a black leadership and the black community as a whole. But over the past 70 years, the leadership has not distinguished itself with regard to its progressivism on foreign policy. In fact, it's been absent without leave. And therefore, presumably Mr. Biden and those of the 1% that back him feel that that gives him a certain amount of leeway with regard to the execution of foreign policy, but it will only boomerang against the black community because it will be difficult to address this community's pressing needs concerning education and health care in the first instance, as long as tax dollars are being poured down a rat hole at the Pentagon. Yeah, I wanted to play a portion of the Blinken testimony uh, when he's talking about Venezuela, and then we can get you to react to that. Is it your view that the situ- that our stance towards Venezuela should change in essence, that we should no longer recognize Juan Guaido and and, and enter into negotiations with with Maduro? No, it is not. Uh, I very much agree with you, Uh, Senator. First of all, uh, with regard to a number of the steps that were taken uh, toward Venezuela uh, in uh, in recent years, uh, including recognizing uh, Mr. Guaido, uh, recognizing the National Assembly as the only democratically uh, elected institution uh, in Venezuela, um, seeking to increase pressure on the regime uh, led by a brutal dictator uh, in Maduro, uh, as well as to um, uh, try to work uh, with some of our allies and partners. The the hard part is that uh, for all of uh, those efforts, which which I support, um, we obviously have not gotten the results uh, that that we need. And one of the things I would really welcome doing, uh, if confirmed, is, is to come and talk some of that uh, that through with you uh, and with others on this committee, because um, we need uh, an effective policy that can restore uh, Venezuela 
uh, to uh, to democracy, starting with free and fair elections. And how uh, can we best uh, advance that ball? Um, I think there's some things that we can uh, look at, particularly better, uh, stronger coordination, cooperation with like-minded countries. Uh, maybe we need to look at how we more effectively target uh, the sanctions that we have so that regime enablers really feel the pain uh, of those sanctions. And that's Antony Blinken at his Senate confirmation hearing this week before the Senate. And this is a day before the inauguration. And as you were just talking about black leadership and how they have been missing in action when it comes to foreign policy. I thought about that during the inauguration. Of course, you know, people have been raving over the poem given by the young poet, I think Amanda Gorman, and just talking about the the performances, you know, that night, even at the concert with many African-Americans performing. But I was just thinking there are black people in Venezuela who are being uh, victimized by this. If the same young woman had been in Venezuela, she would be targeted by Juan Guaido, as the other Afro-Venezuelans are. Or if she was a young woman in Cuba, she would be uh, targeted by the illegal sanctions and the targeting of Cuba. So that's just the way I'm looking at the inauguration. It just rang hollow for me on so many levels as they talked about democracy but are really denying democracy to other people, you know, right here in this hemisphere. Well, a fundamental question is why is the Secretary of State designate Mr. Blinken agreeing with the neoconservative Senator Marco Rubio of Florida? Uh, That does not bode well for the future. And certainly you have a valid point when you suggest that there are those in the black leadership who are trying to ride two horses going in different directions at the same time. Uh, On the one hand, they are cuddling up to Mr. Biden and expect to get certain benefits as a result. On the other hand, as you suggested, they're riding away from black people in the hemisphere. I don't think that's a sustainable policy in the long term. Okay, so in addition to the inauguration and the heavily fortified festivities that happened here this week, The week started on Martin Luther King Jr. holiday with the release of the report from the so-called 1776 Commission. And this was a commission impaneled by former President Trump to basically, I guess, criticize how the true history of slavery and genocide is is taught in some schools or and by some texts. Uh, I don't see it as a widely widely spread education, but certainly by the time you get to the college level, you might have a chance to have a professor like yourself who really gets into the the meat of the issue of the last 500 years. But anyway, so this report, one of the things it said was that the civil rights movement was, quote, almost immediately turned into programs that ran counter to the lofty ideals of the founders, end quote, of this country, and criticized affirmative action. So because I, I think of this report as being in response to the 1619 Project that we've discussed from the New York Times and your own scholarly research and books, I just know that you would like to make some kind of comment about it. Well, what's ironic about the so-called 1776 Commission is that it is clearly aimed at the 1619 Project, but what the New York Times did not reveal, nor 
did most of the corporate media reveal in terms of their critical reportage on this commission report is that in many ways the liberal establishment in the universities basically agree with Mr. Trump's 1776 commission uh, not to mention certain forces who consider themselves quote socialists unquote who you may recall were some of the sternest critics of the 1619 project uh, for example you have an Ivy League historian who will go nameless who spoke at Harvard and received a handsome fee that led to a book that basically whitewashed the late 18th century history of the United States not to mention the U.S. Constitution and so you wonder as you scratch your head what is the 1776 commission actually complaining about because the ideas that I espouse are not necessarily being circulated at that many universities besides the one that I teach at but I see it as really reflecting a kind of ideological crisis and a political crisis in this country and I, I saw this as well with regard to MSNBC and Joe Scarborough the erstwhile Republican now center-rightist who quite remarkably this week uh, read word for word an editorial that appeared in the conservative National Review magazine that excoriated and denounced the Trump base, the Trump Euro-American base in no uncertain terms and that speaks to the fact that after January 6th the 1% really need a new electoral base because the base that they have been relying upon are not necessarily posed to sedition and insurrection which of course brings us back to Mr. Biden and his attempt to enact an administration with massive black support all right well we've covered international news as well as some of our culture and media segment and so uh, we will definitely keep following both of these stories because they won't go away. <laughs> I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me, Gerald. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for more on culture and media for the start of this year, I'm joined by John Jeter, former Foreign Bureau Chief of the Washington Post, two Tom Pulitzer Prize finalist, and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us again from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Esther, and thank you for having me back. Well, I know that the culture end of our conversation has been more on your mind. And when we say culture and John Jeter, we mean sports and basketball. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what's on your mind in terms of, I guess, particularly black athletes and the relationship to the social justice struggle. 
Well, the one story that has really sort of piqued my interest in the last week has been uh, a story that revolves around a young professional basketball player named Kyrie Irving. Kyrie is a 28-year-old African-American. His mother is a member of the Sioux Nation. His late mother is a member of the Sioux Nation. And he's a very interesting basketball player. He's a very talented basketball player. But I think even more than that, he's very interesting. He's very thoughtful. The sort of uh, uh, pejorative, you know, just shut up and dribble definitely does not apply to him. He is said to have purchased a home for the relatives of George Floyd, the African-American man who was murdered, killed by police in Minneapolis on Memorial Day. He, at the beginning of the last basketball season, the shortened basketball season, shortened by the coronavirus pandemic, when play was resumed, Kyrie suggested to the other players, it's been reported, that the players need to not play as a gesture towards social justice and the continuing violence against African Americans. And he suggested they think about actually the, the players owning the league, uh, the, the National Basketball Association, or, or starting their own league, own player-owned league. Of course, as a fan of worker-owned cooperatives, that made me jump for joy. But of course, the media is down on Kyrie, to say the least. They consistently reproach him for his political stances, his political involvement, and urge him just to play basketball. Kyrie Irving apparently took seven games off, and there's been some different reports about whether, why he took those that time off. Part of it seems to be in response to the mob, the lynch mob, the white lynch mob, mostly white lynch mob, that attacked Capitol Hill last week. It seems to be in response to that. And he has constantly contextualized basketball in the larger struggle for justice. In an interview just Tuesday, I believe, before his return to the basketball court, he said this. Just a separation between what's going on here, um, you know, when I'm playing professionally and what's going on out in the world. And if you don't create that distinction, then it's easy to feel the weight of the world um, while you're going out there and playing. So, you know, I would be lying sitting here and saying I don't feel what's going on in the world and nor am I paying attention to it. Um, you know, I just have a huge responsibility, I feel, to continue to serve my community and underserved. And, you know, when I'm out here playing, it's continuing to leave knowledge with these guys and, and commit to something, like I always say, bigger than ourselves. You know, this 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 team environment here, um, or just in basketball in general, it takes sacrifice and compromise. You know, and we got to come to an agreement and just stay in balance throughout this long journey. So that's all That's all I'm trying to do. So, so Esther, as you can see, the young man has a lot more on his mind than just basketball. Uh, he's involved with the community, uh, with the black community. There is uh, a Zoom of him participating in a group conversation about a candidate, a progressive candidate for the district attorney of Manhattan. And so the young man has a lot on his mind. He's clearly a thoughtful person, the kind of person I would think we would want to encourage our young people to be like this. He's a citizen, right? This is a young man who's clearly trying to work some things out at a very distressing time in this nation's history, obviously. But part of this seems to be the media's very narrow way of seeing the, not just the world, but the sports world, and specifically, if I may, black athletes. So I'd like to play for you a uh, white sports reporter 
columnist, I believe she's with the Boston Globe, uh, Jackie McMullen, who's covered the NBA for many, many years. And she recounted uh, for uh, a ESPN audience the other day, or very recently, a conversation she had with Kyrie in which Kyrie challenged the notion of an NBA draft. An NBA draft, which basically denies an NBA prospect the opportunity that we all have to participate in a free market and choose the employer that we want to work for, right? So here's Jackie McMullen explaining this conversation that she had with Kyrie a few years ago. We got into an argument about, you know, something. And he's like, well, there shouldn't be an NBA draft. Players should be able to go wherever they want to go. We're not, you know, someone's property. And I'm like, yeah, you are, dude. That's the way it works. Wow. (laughs) So what you hear there is there's no self-consciousness about, there's no discomfort with the idea of NBA owners who are, with, with one exception, Michael Jordan, all white, owning as property vis-a-vis shadow slaves NBA players they may be well paid but still the idea that they are owned that they are property doesn't seem to cause Jackie McMullen or any of these sports reporters who have written about this who have talked about this on these myriad talk shows on ESPN and other outlets it doesn't seem to cause any discomfort and so the very narrow mindedness with which our sports media approaches sports and the world and their reportage really, I think, contributes to the downsizing of our democracy. This could be a very full-throated discussion that that Kyrie, who doesn't have all the answers, right? I mean, clearly he doesn't. So what we see is we see a a media, a sports media specifically, that's incapable of having a full-throated discussion about democracy, about the role of sports in our society, about racial justice, about how we might rethink these institutions and arrangements of power in a way that is more democratic. They're incapable of having this. In their mind, Kyrie is property. He is owned by the Brooklyn Nets, and he should play basketball. And this has been articulated by a wide range of reporters, not just, of course, Jackie McMullen, but you'll see Shaquille O'Neal and our former colleague, the Washington Post, Michael Wilbon, who are critical of Kyrie in a way that seems almost personal. Another former colleague of ours at the Washington Post, Jay Adande, said a few weeks ago that Kyrie, after he refused to speak to reporters on opening day of the NBA season, he criticized Kyrie for being, he didn't use this term, but you could you could extrapolate from what he said, that Kyrie was almost uppity, that he was speaking above uh, his intellect. Uh, his station was, in life. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. Uh, it was horrific. And as someone I know, Jared, I haven't spoken to him in many years, but I gasped when I heard it. Uh, the sort of the sort of uh, the, uh, the, the racial overtones, which are not at all addressed, but are it's the eight hundred pound elephant in the room. And so, I just think that there's a a real opportunity that's being missed, particularly in this moment, where you have athletes who are, who are increasingly starting to challenge these institutions and these power arrangements, these, these arrangements of power which result in injustice. Uh, there was a young man the other day for the Cleveland Cavaliers who was upset that the team had moved his locker to accommodate a new player. They had just made a trade for him. This a young man's name is Kevin Porter Jr. 
I believe he's a second-year guard. Very good, I've heard, but has some off-the-court issues. I think there was an incident with drug, with uh, uh, an accusation of uh, driving uh, under the influence, and there was a gun found. I think those charges were dropped, but has had some issues off-the-court. Very young man, though. I think he's 19, 20 years old. They moved his locker, which is curious. Why would you move a player's locker to accommodate a new player when you could just move the new player? And so he exploded and made some comments about the NBA being uh, a racial plantation, a slave plantation, or akin to a slave plantation. They cut him, or, or plan to cut him, or trade him, and they announced this within hours of this very angry exchange. And so there seems to be an opportunity here for the sports media, the media at large, to start to begin to address these issues about our shrinking democracy, about the shrinking opportunities available to the working class generally, but specifically to young black men, and a relationship that has remained unchanged since, virtually unchanged since the 1968 riots and the current commission report on civil disorders, where we still see the same, see the same discrepancies in employment and housing opportunities. We still see police violence against black men. Uh, and increasingly we see it more, if, if only because of the technology. And these issues have not been addressed, and the media refuses to address it, even though they have this opportunity with players like Kyrie Irving to address it head on. And they refuse a sort of willful ignorance, I think, where, you know, our democracy is all the worse for it. Well, uh, what you're describing seems to really dovetail into a theme for this show, which has been the, in another context, how unselfconscious the media is about the hypocritical way that it's covering very fraught issues of our time right now. Uh, even this week, the, the fact that I heard, you know, on the liberal media, CNN, MSNBC, uh, they're not self-conscious about how they can, uh, laud Biden's speech about democracy while at the same time his nominated Secretary of State is talking about continuing to target the democratically elected government in Venezuela. So the media's hypocrisy and inability to be introspective, to be self-critical is just on full display. So unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. we kind of run out of time. But let people know how they can read more of your work, John, or follow you. Uh, I can be found on Patreon, John Jeter, J-O-N-J-E-T-E-R. Okay. Thank you for joining me today, John. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke at onthegroundshow.org. You can check out all of our current and past shows, contact us, and support us. The music we played this hour included Raised by Incognito, Moss Street Fighter by Kamasi Washington, End of the Line by Fotec, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com 
forward slash on the ground show. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.